everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you have tuned in. Two years ago, Republicans lost a number of congressional races around the country to Democrats in districts that have been red for a really long time. The victories for moderate Democratic women in mostly suburban districts fit a national narrative that there was a so-called pink wave in 2018. In Michigan's 8th congressional district, incumbent Congressman Mike Bishop lost his seat to challenger Alyssa Slotkin, a former CIA analyst who served three tours in Iraq. Slotkin won that seat two years after voters in that district voted for Donald Trump by a seven-point margin. Now, Republicans hope to win that congressional seat back. GOP voters nominated Paul Young, a former deputy district attorney, former Trump administration official, and TV anchor. A little later in the hour, we're going to hear from Congresswoman Slotkin about why she thinks she deserves another two-year term on Capitol Hill. But first, I'm joined by Paul Young, Slotkin's Republican challenger. Paul, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. How are you? Great. Uh, It's great to have you here. So let's start with this. Why are you running for Congress? Well, um, I've always been interested in uh, government and public policy. Uh, My first job, I worked uh, out of college. I worked for a U.S. senator. Uh, And then in my professional life, I was, as you mentioned, a prosecutor. I worked as a TV news anchor. I worked in my family business. But the last few years, I'd I'd come back to public service. I'd worked as a, um, uh, again, for uh, U.S. Senate. I was an investigative counsel with the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, And then when President Trump was elected, I served in the administration and uh, for some personal reasons, I ended up coming back home to Michigan. And as I, I went across the 8th District, Ingham County, Livingston County, and Oakland County, uh, what I heard from people last summer and fall was uh, a feeling that we were not being well represented, that uh, candidate Slotkin had presented herself as, as a moderate and as someone who'd be independent-minded. But her time in office was making increasingly clear that, no, she was a very partisan, uh, voting 96% of the time with Speaker Pelosi, And as I heard those kind of complaints and those feelings, I thought, hey, with my background, um, perhaps I could offer myself to the voters of the 8th District and and, uh, decided to run for Congress. Hmm. So a little later in the interview, I do want to talk to you a little more about this charge you're making against Congresswoman Slotkin and and her politics. But before we get to that... I don't know if I would call it a charge. I'm just speaking facts about what her voting record is. Well, we'll talk about some of the things that, that she's done and not done and whether they fit the narrative... Uh, that you're putting together. But but before we get to that, I, I, I do want to give you a chance to talk about the things that you would do differently and what your top policy goals would be if you were elected to represent the 8th District in Washington. Well, I think I would start by listening to the voters of the 8th District and trying to uh get to the priorities that they want to see performed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those would include things like continuing economic policies that uh, – you know, before the coronavirus, uh, led to record low unemployment across all sectors of our society. Uh, economic policies that saw incomes rising for everyone, but especially people at the lower end of the income spectrum. Uh, and I, so I would be working on those kind of issues. I would be working on uh, health care issues. People care about uh, seeing the cost of prescription drugs go up, and I'd be working on a number of measures to, to combat that problem. 
Uh, I would be working on strengthening Medicare and Social Security. Uh, and, but, of course, issues have come up since I declared my candidacy that will demand attention. Hmm. Uh, and I'm sure we're going to talk about them, both coronavirus and the uh, terrible unrest that we're seeing in so many cities across the country. Hmm. So uh, you, you mentioned there shoring up programs like Medicare and Social Security, and you're running a commercial right now where you talk about the importance of doing that. Um, what do you mean when you say that? And and contrast, I guess, your position on that with some of the things that President Trump has done, including trying to delay the, the, the payroll tax, which is the main funder for Social Security. Uh, would you would you say that that's a way to shore up that program, or do you have another set of ideas? Well, I think, uh, look, Social Security has been an important program for our country for, what, about 80, 90 years now. And, and people have been paying into that. They, they rely on it, and we absolutely have to protect it. Uh, and you are correct that uh, the payroll tax is one of the fundamental ways that we fund that. Now, if, if uh, the president has... Uh, Put a, put a stop to that for six months as a means of helping people, uh, you know, employed people at the lower end of the income spectrum or even at the middle end of the spectrum not have to pay that tax for a period during an economic challenging time, we can certainly make that up. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not aware of any proposals to make that uh, recess or that stop permanent. I can't imagine I would support that kind of thing because we absolutely have to continue to fund Social Security and Medicare. And, you know, the, the revenue that's being lost, we can make that up uh, by, by disbursement from the general fund. Um, you know, but going forward, I'm old enough to remember when a bipartisan approach to improving Social Security was handled during the Ronald Reagan administration. And that's exactly the kind of thing that I would want to be a part of it when I get to Congress. Social Security is just too important that just one party is going to solve that problem. It's going to require leaders from both parties to come to solutions about that. And, and that's part of what I would, would be a part of. Hmm. Um, in one of your campaign videos, you say, in fact, that America during the time of President Ronald Reagan, quote, was a place of unlimited opportunity for those who want it. And it still is. Uh, do you believe that's true? For communities of color in this country? I mean, that's one of the things that we are really grappling with right now is the gap between uh, white America and, and the rest of America. I, I wonder what, what you make of that gap, given uh, your, your statements about President Ronald Reagan and the country that, uh, that you believe he created. Well, I don't know that I would say Ronald Reagan created the country. Um, you know, the pre President Reagan, I think, had a lot of great policies and helped bring America out of a difficult time in the 1970s. But I do think that America is a land of opportunity. And, and I do. But I, I'm also quite clear that America is not a perfect place, uh, that we are continually striving to do our best to better realize the American dream. And. You know, I think earlier as we were talking, I mentioned that, you know, prior to the coronavirus, we were seeing record low levels of unemployment across all spectrums of society. And that included included for African-Americans, for Hispanic Americans. So, um, you know, the, the, when you when you have policies that let people realize their potentials and realize their dreams, you can begin to see those gaps in employment and in income 
come together. So, yeah, the, I mean, this is always an important conversation to have. And, and, you know, I don't think celebrating the ideals of America and the progress of America in any way suggests that you think it's a perfect place so that we don't need to continue to find policies to address problems that exist. Hmm. Uh, I'm talking with Paul Young, a Republican nominee for Michigan's 8th Congressional District. He is challenging Democratic incumbent Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, if you have questions for Paul, give us a call and let us know what uh, you would like to ask him. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation. We especially want to hear from you if you are a voter in the 8th District, uh, which elected a Democrat uh, two years ago for the first time in a really long time. Tell us what issues are on your radar as we get closer to November of this year and how you expect to uh, make your decision at the ballot box. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number, as always, here on the phones. Uh, Paul, you, you talked about two issues that I want to give you a chance to ex- expand on as well. Uh, the congressional response to the coronavirus pandemic, which is still uh, a pretty critical issue in Washington, and also how we fix our broken health care system. Uh, let's start with uh, the coronavirus response. What would you do if you were elected? Well, I mean, if I'm elected, I'm going to be sworn into office in January of, of 2021. And, and of course, things may be very different uh, three and a half months from now than they are today. I mean, who would have guessed six months ago that we would have seen the, the just dramatic challenge that this global pandemic uh, has presented? Um, you know, look, I think there have been good things about both the response of the, the uh, President Trump and by Governor Whitmer. And I think there have been problems in those responses. And, and I think that's to be expected when a new challenge uh, faces a society. You don't know exactly what's going to happen and what you should do. Mm. I think similarly, Congress uh, has had some good response, but some things that I think should have been better. I'll give one example. Uh, the, uh, the PPP program, which was helping employers, mm-hmm. I routinely back in April and May was talking with employers and, and continue those conversations today. And I know that program helped not just the employers, not just small businesses, but the thousands, tens of thousands of people that are employed by those employers, keep those people employed or paid at least uh, when we were having the worst of our economic shutdown. And one of the problems I saw in Congress was what I saw was delays in implementing that program, which could be detrimental to those small businesses. And one of my critiques of Congresswoman Slotkin was her support for Speaker Pelosi, she should have been pushing harder to to get those things resolved. So when she says, you know, I'm a moderate, I work for bipartisan consensus, we just don't see it. She just sits silently as the partisan leadership of her party delays action. Uh, and what about uh, the healthcare system? Uh, what would your approach be to some of the critical questions that surround the Affordable Care Act? Some of the deficiencies, inefficiencies, inadequacies that have been exposed during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, what would your approach look like? Well, I think the the challenge of providing health care for our society is one that's always been there. I mean, you know, 10 years ago when when uh, Democrats on a pretty party line vote 
instituted the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, they, one of the chief complaints was that there were, I forget the exact number, 35, 40 million uh, uninsured Americans. Well, that number today is still at about 30 million Americans. So, um, you know, I, I think about the Affordable Care Act, and I think if that's part of a solution, we should continue to have it be part of the solution. But it clearly was not a cure-all. And, uh, you know, so when we think about, I, I, I would, any healthcare solution that I would be proposing would be focused on patients, focused on their health care providers, would be to demand transparency, would be to, you know, these complex rules that let the drug companies gain the system. We need to, we need to change those rules. And, and I think a lot of that comes through, you know, demanding transparency. So those would be some of the approaches I would have on, on the, the questions and challenges of health care. Okay. Uh, I do want to talk about uh, what you characterize as Congresswoman Slotkin's a far-left uh, approach to the job. Um, but some congressional watchdog groups that track members' ideology scores uh, take a, a different uh, uh, approach to her. They rank her among the most conservative Democrats in Congress. And some examples of places that she differs from some of the more liberal members is that uh, she doesn't support Medicare for all, uh, she says she does not support the idea of defunding the police, which is one of the issues that has uh, arisen out of the Black Lives Matter protests. She's not calling for abolishing ICE. And she was one of the last Democrats to back the idea of impeaching President Trump. So so how do you square those things with the image of Slotkin that you are trying to uh, paint in your ads? Well, I don't know what the organizations are that you're referring to that that's uh, reporter is moderate, but let me let me tick through your examples and I'll start with the um the first one or rather the last one where you you claim that she was among the last people to support impeachment. I think that's actually absolutely wrong. Uh, it's um, not. I mean, I talked to her just days before the vote and she said that she was not decided yet on what to do. So I mean, well, that's, 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 you're saying that's she was one. being untruthful about it? Stephen, let's be clear. On September 23rd of last year, uh, Congresswoman Slotkin, with I think five or six other freshman members, wrote a letter to the Washington Post asking that there begin an investigation on impeachment. Now, you you may believe that uh, she waited till the last minute to decide, um, and you know it's, that's nice to accept at face value what everyone says. I hope we give that same consideration to to other candidates and other elected officials. But without her action, along with her colleagues in that letter, Speaker Pelosi, until that point, had been resisting opening up any investigation into the, to any type of impeachment effort. And the very next day, that's when it started. Mm. So to suggest that somehow she was terribly reluctant or not a part of it, I think, is just factually incorrect. So you, you think it's OK, then, to conflate the idea of investigating the need for impeachment <laughs> hearings with voting oh, for Stephen, impeachment? You're just bending over backwards so desperately to, to make whatever case you care to make for the congresswoman. Don't Please don't accuse me of conflating anything. Well, you just you did. Can, you just said that her letter, which said that, that, that uh, there needed to be an investigation, is the same as voting for impeachment. And in fact, I had a conversation with her just days before the vote on impeachment in which she said she had not made up her mind. 
Well, Stephen, I mean, the voters of the 8th District will decide the selection on many issues. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you live in the 8th District. I don't. Um, I live you, in the you, city. It, it sounds like you, you would decide that she was a terribly reluctant uh, evaluator of the evidence and only at the last minute decided that she wanted to vote for impeachment. I can tell you, as I've been campaigning for months, that's not the view of hundreds, if not thousands, of people in the 8th District. Mm -hmm. So... Um, you know, I mean, it's it's. I'm, I appreciate the pains that you're taking to present her as a moderate candidate. Well, I'm not. not I'm not presenting not her as anything. I'm. I'm telling you what other assessments of her are, and I'm telling you that on that count, especially, we had a conversation on this show just just a few days before the vote, where she said. She was undecided. I am taking her at face value. I try to do that. I mean, there was there, there wasn't a reason to disbelieve what she was saying at that point. Um, but what about these other what about these other issues? Medicare for all. She doesn't support that. Uh, she doesn't call for abolishing ICE or these other things. I'm trying to get you to flesh out what the accusation you're making is. Well, thank, I mean. I appreciate that you're trying to get me to do something. We've been do, we've been talking now for 15 minutes on mm -hmm. these topics. Um, you know, let, let me take the issue of defunding the police. I believe what the congresswoman has said is is that she would want to reprioritize spending. Mm -hmm. And of course, who? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, I'm listening. Uh, you know, and who can ever be against uh, a legislator? Uh, listening to a program and say, hey, let's always think about what our priorities should be. But in a sense, that's kind of it's it's tough to pin down exactly what people mean when they say defund. I mean, there are definitely uh, members. I think Ilhan Omar, I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have both said, hey, when we say defund, we mean defund. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but people want to take a safer position, but but appear sympathetic to that idea. Say, well, really, we just kind of want to reprioritize. So, well, do you object to reprioritizing the way we spend money on on public safety, Stephen? I just told you a minute earlier that I did not. Right. That it's always that it's reasonable for a legislator to take the position that you look at a program and you think about the best way to spend it. That's always a reasonable position to take. Mm -hmm. What I'm suggesting to you is. That, that when there are politicians that are sympathetic and don't want to offend a part of a movement that says defund, they, they kind of play cute with it and say, well, we're really just going to reprioritize. So, again, if, if you accept at face value that, well, I, I don't really agree, but, you know, but, but then when you watch what she will do with her voting, that's, that's why I emphasize that she votes 96% of the time with Pelosi or 90% of the time with the members of the squad. Yeah. Well, so can, can you think of uh, that's an interesting that's an interesting way to characterize a freshman congressperson's voting. Can you think of an example of uh, a new member of Congress who votes less consistently with the party that they were elected uh, with? I mean, it, it, Congress is a pretty I, institutional place and I mean, I spent a lot of time in, in Washington. I I can't think of uh, a congressperson who was elected who did it differently. Would you? I, I suspect almost all members vote less, almost all Democratic members vote less often with, with Speaker Pelosi than, than does Alyssa Slotkin. I mean, just I can give you just one example. The, the Democrats called it the HEROES Act, the $3 trillion act, mm -hmm. with $1,200 payments to illegal immigrants, with allowing violent criminals to go free in certain instances. Twelve Democrats voted against that bill. 
Uh, that's not a lot, but that's 12. Congresswoman Flocken voted for that bill. So, you know, in, in an instance, in an important big bill where she could have gone against her party, where she could have not been with the party leadership, she went along. Okay. Well, Paul Young, I do really appreciate you coming on the program and talking with us about uh, your candidacy for the 8th Congressional District here in Michigan. Uh, good luck to you and the rest of the campaign. All right. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to hear from Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin about why she feels she has earned another two years in Congress. Stay with us on Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining. We are talking this hour about the 8th District, the 8th Congressional District here in Michigan, which was won by Alyssa Slotkin, a Democratic woman, uh, for the first time for Democrats in a really long time in 2018. Slotkin is standing for re-election this year. We just heard from her challenger, Paul Young, about why he would like to replace her in Washington. And I would like to now welcome Alyssa Slotkin to the show to tell us why she thinks she deserves another two years representing Michigan's 8th District. Uh, Congresswoman, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's start with uh, your thumbnail pitch to voters. Why should they send you back for another two years in Washington? Sure. Um, well, because we do have elections every two years, I think it's important that anyone who's running be able to explain, you know, the value proposition to the voters on why hopefully I deserve people's second vote, if not their first time voting for me. And I think it's both um, what we've been able to do in the short time I've been in Congress and then how I've gone about doing it. Um, we've been able to pass nine uh, provisions into law, um, things on veterans, but really six out of the nine on PFAS, uh, the forever chemical that's such a problem here in our state, especially in one of my counties, um, and then introduced another 22. Now, all the bills that we passed and all the 22 that I introduced have been bipartisan. Um, I am a, a, a person who believes in bipartisanship in my bones because I worked for presidents of both parties, Bush and Obama. Um, one of the first things I did when I joined in Congress was join the Problem Solvers Caucus. It's a, the only bipartisan caucus, equal numbers of Dems and Republicans. And I, I've tried to go about um, crafting legislation that creates an overlap between Democrats and Republicans so we actually get something done. Mm. I think that's part of my job. Mm. Um, and, uh, and on top of that, We've had almost uh, now 35, I believe, town halls and public events so that even if people don't agree with me, and certainly in the 8th District, not everyone agrees with me, I've tried to be transparent and available, answering questions on why I voted how I have um, in a way that I hope is responsive to the interests of my district. So last time you ran, you said you were not interested in getting into battles with President Trump. But as your challenger pointed out in our earlier interview, 
It was the op-ed in the Washington Post that you co-authored backing impeachment hearings that set up those proceedings and set that entire uh, process in motion. Um, explain that shift and what you're telling constituents in the 8th District now uh, about that decision. And do you think that you have honored that commitment not to get into battles with President Trump? Yeah, I certainly um, can't think of an issue I wanted to work on less in my first term in Congress than impeachment. And I was against impeachment for a long time when, when many of my peers were out very early. Um, even after the Mueller report came out in April of 19, I, I was against it and felt like the 2020 election was the way to meter out who should be our president. And in fact, last summer, almost exactly a year ago, I was being protested from the left by people who were angry with that stance. Mm. But uh, the facts that came in last September over the course of about a week um, that just made very clear that the, the president and his lawyer had reached out to a foreign government to ask for help in an American election just forced my hand and really forced me to look at my oath of office. And uh, I did start talking with other members of Congress who also were in Trump voting districts, people um, that were also reluctant on, in, on impeachment. And I just had to look myself in the mirror and say, um, what do I owe as a, an elected leader? Um, and, and how do I um, stay silent if I believe something really does contravene the spirit um, of our laws and of our, our Constitution? So we did call for an impeachment inquiry. Um, I can't say that we caused it, but we were certainly, um, uh, you know, vocal about it. Well, it was the and cover... It it was the cover that I think the speaker needed, really, uh, to be able to do it. And and it's true that she was not really uh, enthusiastic about this idea until that op-ed ran. And I, I think one of the one of the things that your challenger would say is that that was, uh, you know, uh, that was something of a of a. Uh, manipulation, perhaps, of the of the process that that this this op-ed was a way to 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 greenlight something um, that that the speaker was maybe not willing to do uh, on her own. Well, I I don't it certainly wasn't a, a a big thought out strategic plan. I think that those of us who drafted the op-ed together were all either veterans or former intelligence community folks. We were folks who had taken the oath of office many times before and raised our hand to commit to upholding the Constitution. And that is the place from which I wrote uh, that op-ed. And I can't tell you um, how clearly I knew that it would be controversial, how I knew it would kick off a firestorm in the district. Um, and what I tried to do is be as present and available as possible. We held six town halls in three months. And I was asked every single day, uh, is this the end of your career? Are you going to be voted out? And I will tell you, when you're asked every day, um, you get comfortable saying, it might be. And we're going to find out here in the next couple of weeks, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I still believe that Michiganders care about having elected leaders with integrity um, and that even if people don't agree with me, um, they want to know that I am thorough in how I make decisions and open about it. And I will always explain myself. That is what I owe them. So um, the decision will be up to the people of the 8th District. Um, and um, I just, um, this was not, uh, you know, being in Congress and just voting to keep myself in the seat over and over and over again is not how I 
plan to go about being an elected leader. And if that's not what people want, well, then they'll tell me with their votes. They'll vote with their feet. Um, so, so, and we're going to find out. So one of the other uh, statistics that uh, Paul Young points out uh, in his criticism of you is how often you vote with Speaker Pelosi. He says 96% is among the highest uh, for Democrats in in the House. Uh, talk about what the approach that you've taken is to establishing an independent voice for yourself in, in Congress and how you reconcile that with how often you are voting in lockstep with, with the party. Yeah, unfortunately, he likes to cherry pick numbers, but I will just tell you that when I vote, it is what I believe based on the, the reflections of my district is the right thing to do. I don't vote because Pelosi votes a certain way. I don't vote because Trump votes a certain way. And I would ask my opponent if he plans to stand up and contradict his leadership of his party. Um, it is important to me that people know that 100% of my votes have been in the interest of my constituents. And instead of the, the, in, the data that he's using, I would just point to the fact that I voted over 800 times and 640 of those votes are bipartisan, where we've got Democrats and Republicans voting for the same bill. So um, I stand by my votes, uh, and um, I stand by my independence. I voted against my party 55 times in my first, uh, you know, 19, 20 months. That's almost once a voting week. Um, and so I'm happy to, to sort of open up the books on my record. Um, and I would ask, you know, as I, I watched my opponent um, you know, stand without a mask, being cheered at the Trump rally yesterday, if he will do the same thing um, if, you know, he's looking to be elected. Hmm. I'm talking with Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, a Democrat who represents Michigan's 8th Congressional District. She is running for a second term in the U.S. House. We're talking uh, about her candidacy for that role. If you would like to join the conversation, uh, what questions do you have for incumbent Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, uh, and how do you think she has done representing the 8th District uh, over the last two years? Especially, we would love to hear from you if you live in the 8th District and will be casting your vote in November, either for Congresswoman Slotkin or for her challenger, Paul Young. The number on the phones here is always 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation here. Uh, Congresswoman, I want to talk about uh, some issues. Uh, Medicare for all. You have not backed that proposal, which is pretty popular among some other Democrats and, of course, very popular with with the far left. Um, Talk about how we can realistically address the disparities in our healthcare system uh, that we have seen laid bare during this pandemic if we don't uh, embrace, uh, you know, an approach like Medicare for all. What's your idea instead? Yeah, I don't support Medicare for all, but... I think we have maybe lost Congresswoman Slotkin there on the phones. We are going to uh, we're going to try to get her back uh, to continue this conversation with her. In the meantime, uh, let's get to some of the phones again. Three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can uh, give us a call, and we will get Congresswoman Slotkin back to answer your questions 
about her candidacy. Let's go to Delphine and Warren. Delphine, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Okay, thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. I had tried to get in while Paul Young was on. And mm-hmm. I wanted to comment on how I am very unhappy with his negative ads. Mm. And when someone votes to investigate, is not the same as voting to impeach, as a matter of fact, how is it that the two top Republicans in the states, uh, Snyder and Brandt, are running against or trying to get rid of Trump and all of his shenanigans. Mm. So, uh, but I was thrilled to see her, uh, Alyssa Snotkin, and the other women become congresswomen, and they've been a real asset to in, a, in Congress. Mm. So thank you for what you've done. And by the way, I am for Medicare for All. Originally, I was with Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie person, but uh, <laughs> I'll go with, with uh, Biden for now. <laughs> right. And thank you for your work, and thanks for taking my call, Stephen. Sure. Uh, Delphine, we, we are hopeful that we will work out our our phone issues uh, and get Congresswoman Slotkin back on the phones to be able to explain why she doesn't support Medicare for all and what she would like to do to in, improve uh, the health care system in, in our country. We are we are working on that now and, and waiting for her uh, to pop back up here. Uh, meanwhile, let's go to Patricia in St. Clair Shores. Patricia, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, thank you. I think that Alyssa Slotkin has not only served her country with integrity, she has served her district with integrity. But what I want to get to is that Paul Young spoke of defunding the police, as many Republicans do, yet they never talk about when Governor Engler defunded public health in this state. Mental health, yeah. Yes. And and the police departments and the criminal justice system have cried for years about how they are not capable of— dealing with mental health and substance abuse issues, and that it has overrun the prisons and the jails, yet no one talks about the fact that there was all that money was taken out of public health. Mm-hmm. I worked in the hospitals. I worked in substance abuse. I had to go from job to job to job because each place, each treatment facility was the last man standing. Yeah. And we were all out of jobs, and now we're trying to recreate that with the opioid crisis and yet they never address that. We don't want to take money from police salaries. What we want is to use the, the funding that was that was spent on jails and prisons to take care of people, not lock up illness. Yeah, Patricia, that's a really, really interesting connection, and, and I, I love that you're drawing that connection. The idea of defunding the police is somehow uh, obnoxious. But nobody batted an eyelash, it seems, when Governor Engler was talking about defunding mental health. And the consequences uh, of that, even Governor Engler uh, in his later years has acknowledged that that was uh, a big mistake. Uh, Thank you very much for the call and for that reminder. Uh, We do have Congresswoman Slotkin back with us uh, on the phones. Uh, Congresswoman, you were talking about why you don't support uh, Medicare for All. I want to give you a chance to finish. Sure. I'm not sure where I, where I uh, uh, jumped out of there, but um, I, I don't support Medicare for all. I support a public option. 
I believe that all people deserve access to health care they can afford because it's personal. It comes from my own experience with my mom, who didn't have insurance mm-hmm. when she was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer here at the in suburban Detroit. Um, and I believe that it's good for everybody, right? If you're an employee, I, I know all these people who are literally staying in a dead-end job because that's where they get their insurance. Um, they'd love to go off and start their own business, but they don't want to be left without an option, a good option, a competitive option. Um, and then employers who tell me that they spend 25% of their you know, overhead on covering insurance, very expensive health insurance for their employees. Our young people who are entering their workplace don't need the Cadillac option. Many of them um, are happy to go with something basic. And I think if you had a competitive public option, it would be the most popular program in the country. And it would create that important competition with the private insurance that is so important to bringing prices down because people are paying still too much in their health care and their prescription drugs. So yeah. I don't support Medicare for all. I've never once seen um, the math that actually makes sense. And the discussion of the trade-off, um, should you actually go to, to put that in place? Um, uh, that said, a public option, I think, is a viable, reasonable, competitive alternative to make sure all people have access to health care. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the common thread between those two, I think, is, is universal care. And that's what I think we're mm-hmm. trying to get for. And that's, you don't oppose the idea of universal care. I just want to make that clear. Absolutely not. I mean, the, the principles underlying the ACA, you know, people, it's very controversial, the ACA or Obamacare, um, but the underlying principles, I've never met a ton of people who disagree with them, right? That all people, you know, including those with pre-existing con- conditions, deserve access to care and shouldn't be gouged like my mom was hmm. because she happened to have a pre-existing yeah. condition. Uh, we're going to have to... Yeah. We're going to have to end quickly, but I, I want to get one more question in before we do. In 2018, you said that you would not take donations from corporate PACs, but you did accept money from leadership PACs and party committees, which are, of course, heavily funded with corporate PAC money. Explain that and talk about whether you plan to accept that money this time around. You know, this is kind of this pretzel logic that somehow, um, you know, where we the fact that I refuse to take corporate PAC money, which is a huge dent um, in what money, frankly, I could be raising as a candidate. I, we estimate that I probably lose about a million dollars a term by taking a stand and not taking corporate PAC money. I made the decision that I wasn't going to take money from someone, from a company uh, that had stood to profit from any way that I voted because I never wanted my constituents to question why I was voting a certain way. Um, and for me, you know, the, this question always comes from people who they themselves will not um, commit to take it, to denying co- corporate PAC money. And I know my opponent, he likes to talk about this, but I'm happy if he wants to be the first Republican in the country to refuse corporate PAC money. But the um, question about the, pa- the yeah. question about who funds pa- leadership PACs and party committees, I mean, if it's the same money, what's what's the distinction you're drawing? Well, I don't. I, I have no uh, proof that it's the same money. And and if I don't know, you know, who's putting that money. If I get a, a donation from a fellow member of Congress, which is what we're talking about, right? If if uh, Debbie Dingle or Dan Kilby wants to help me out and give me a donation, I have no idea um, what corporation that money came from. So I can't. I don't owe that corporation any favors. That's the difference, right? When a corporation comes in and says, "Hey," 
let me in your door here. I want to give you a ton of money, but then I want you to vote a certain way on your on this bill. Um, that's a broken system, and I refuse to engage in that. If uh, I get a donation from a fellow member of Congress, I have no clue, uh, and I owe no one favors um, for yeah, that that's money. A... And that's a big difference in my mind. But do the corporations see that see it that way? I mean, they're giving money. Uh, to the leadership packs and the party committees for the same reason that they would want to give it to you. Isn't the expectation the same? Uh, But if I don't know who they are, then I don't owe them anything. And that's the difference between myself and so many other people, frankly, on both sides of the aisle who take corporate PAC money. Uh, There's plenty of people who get a big $10,000 check from a specific corporation. You can imagine that they come calling and wanting you to vote a certain way. I get money from my fellow member of Congress. I have no idea um, if that's usually from an individual donation, if it's from some other source. But they don't come knocking on my door and expect anything of me, nor would I let them in the door. And that's an important distinction. I do not take money from anyone who's standing to profit from my vote. Mm. Okay, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, Democrat who represents Michigan's 8th District and is standing for re-election in November. Always great to have you here on the show. Thank you very much for coming by. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. All right. That's going to do it for us today. I will be back on Monday. We're going to have a very interesting conversation about cross-racial relationships, allyship, and how our childhoods inform our friendships later in life. This is 1019 WDET Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.